Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa's Us Magazine. Today on the show, we have ESPN football journalist Gabrielle Marcati to talk about all the comings and goings in the world of international football, including the draws for the Champions League and Europa League, which took place yesterday and today as we record. We talk about the groups, what are the toughest groups, what are the prospects for some of the teams in both of those competitions. We talk about the big transfers of the summers, including including the ones that came today with Dembele and possibly Mbappe, and how some of these deals might affect financial fair play for Paris Saint-Germain. We talk about uh, this week in the Premier League, including the big Everton-Chelsea matchup. And we end with a discussion of Gab's ECW fandom from when he went to college in Philadelphia in the late 90s. What he remembers, the shows he went to, and if he's still keeping up with the business. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It's been a big week in international football between the Champions League and Europa League draws and more big money transfers. To help us get a handle on those topics, the first few weeks of domestic football in Europe and more, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show international football journalist Gabrielle Marcotti. How's it going, Gab? Good, Gabrielle Marcotti from ESPN. You say that contractually. But it's okay, because if you don't, I'm happy to remind you like I just did. No, I was going to say, I had the list at the end of uh, ESPN, the Times, the Game Podcast, all of that kind of you, people can find you numerous places. Yeah, not hard to find me. I'm also on uh, on Twitter, and uh, the hashtag is just my last name. So you just got back from the Champions League draw in Monaco. Um, what were your initial thoughts after seeing uh, how the groups all shook out? Well, I mean, I, I often find the, the draw somewhat, you know, anticlimactic. Um, but you know, this time around, and, and I wrote a piece about it, which is up on the, on, on ESPNFC.com. Uh, um, there, there were a few things that kind of that I found intriguing and kind of made me smile. Um, I think the certainly Real Madrid's group with with Borussia Dortmund and and Tottenham, you know, that's shaping up to be uh, I think quite a tough group. But I wouldn't. Again, respect to FOL as well, because obviously uh, they do have history in this competition not that long ago. They got to the quarterfinals. Um, and the other group that jumped out to me was also the Chelsea, Atletico, Roma, and, and Carabag group, just because I think that's a classic group where, you know, I think one false step, um, you, you, can really, you can really get punished for. It's always, you know, if let's say Chelsea be a Atleti home and away or, or, or even get a win and a draw and, you know, it, it could get very, very difficult for, um, you know, it could get very difficult for whoever gets beaten and sort of, or drops points um, in, in the home leg uh, over the, you know, in the clash between the, the two higher, higher seeded teams. It seems like this year, I guess because they did some slight tinkering to the, the pot format. So it seems like with a lot of the groups, there are at least two heavy hitters in a number of groups. So 
it may be kind of obvious, like, the two teams that might go through, but we don't necessarily know who might win the group. I mean, you've got Juventus and Barcelona in one group, and you've got, you know, like you said, Madrid, uh, Dortmund, and Spurs in one group, and even, you know, and then Bayern and PSG and Celtic in one group. So there's a lot where you certainly don't know right now who who the easy favorite to win the group is. No, I think I think that's true, and I mean the the, the change that they made a couple of years ago, um, where they decided, okay, the, you know the seeded teams in part one, they're all going to be champions. Um, you know, is something to Julius uh, likes to call them sort of sporting measures to, to help you know level the playing field a little bit. Uh, and, and so that why you know that's a big help, obviously, to teams like uh, like Shakhtar Donetsk, like like Monaco, like uh, like Spartak Moscow, because they're all they're all national champions, so they get seeded. But of course, it has the effect that you know some some big clubs, formed by UEFA rankings, UEFA coefficient rankings, get bumped down to pot two, and then in turn means others get bumped down to pot three. So it, it creates a situation where. You know, I think you can have some groups that, you know, I think are pretty straightforward. Manchester United's group, I don't want to say it's a cakewalk, but, you know, it's it's pretty darn close to one, I think. Um, and then you've got other groups which are which are probably much more, much more finely balanced. And that was yesterday, and today was the Europa League draw, which, uh, as an Everton fan, was the one that I was as interested in as the Champions League, and we ended up in a group with Lyon, Atalanta, and a Cypriot club that I have to admit I am not totally familiar with. I think that's a fairly good draw for Everton, at least in terms of travel, if nothing else. Oh, in terms of travel, certainly. Um, you know, you get some sunshine in Cyprus. Um, Bergamo, which is where Atalanta are from, is an absolutely gorgeous gem of a city. I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in Italy, actually. Um, they just don't get the amount of tourists uh, other places do because they're slightly inward-looking and, and they don't like advertising to uh, the outsiders. And then, and then of course, Lyon, where, where you have some of the best food in Europe. Um, very pretty city that I had the privilege of visiting and during Euro 2016. So from that perspective, if you're, uh, if you're toffee, you're, you're set. What do you think their initially? What do you think their chances are of making it through the group? I mean, I think uh, you know, obviously on paper, Everton are going to be favorites. I think simply because of because of the spending um, that they've done and and the quality of players that are there. Uh, but you know, Leon are our team, which obviously have a European pedigree, and uh, you know, even without Lacazette, you know, they still have some. Some very gifted players, uh, and also, um, if there's one common thread maybe between Leon and Atalanta, those are two teams with, uh, or two clubs with, with tremendous youth academies. In fact, if you could include Everton as well, um, those are three clubs with, uh, you know, they really invest a lot in, in youngsters, uh, homegrown youngsters, and and really those are, you know, three of the the best academies uh, around, and I think it's kind of cool. Seeing a lot of these guys in the in the starting lineup. Uh, we'll get to uh, their game this weekend in a, a couple of minutes, but 
Um, as we said, this has been a crazy season, off-season for transfers, and as we record this Friday afternoon uh, in the U.S., Friday evening your time, um, it appears Dembele is going to Barcelona, and Mbappe is probably going to PSG. Is that the, the latest that you've heard? Again, as we record this, and <laughs> changed by the hour, as we record this, yeah, Dembele's on his way to, uh, to Barcelona. Mbappe, I I don't know. I think what I don't know how much progress has really been. Uh, I think the main thing is that City have ruled themselves out, and so now it really seems that um, you know if Mbappe moves, there's really just a one destination, and that destination is is Paris. And uh, you know people are talking about a cash plus player uh, deal. Um, yeah, it's looking that way at this stage. And I know you've written a bunch so far uh, since the Neymar signing about financial fair play and how it uh, people seem to be jumping the gun and sort of throwing up all these red flags. But I know you've written that, you know, that people had a lot of preconceptions about how FFP actually works. And how do you think Mbappe... I guess if they add Mbappe, are they going to have to sell off more players to to get their to a more manageable number? The thing to remember is that FFP works on a three-year cycle, and it, and the Mbappe expense and the Neymar expense will figure in in the year for 2017-18, um, and in that accounting year, if you will, that's not over yet. It's barely started. So to say, nobody can definitively say, yeah, they're going to breach FFP because we don't know what's going to happen. And maybe they'll sell everybody. Maybe they'll find a legitimate non competitive sponsor who will pay them a ton of money. Um, from where I sit, I don't see how they can do it without breaching. I, I, I really don't. Uh, there's a lot of talk now that they're going to, you know, they might sell some players to get some money back and you know, whether it's Quedis or Lucas Mora or Di Maria. But the fact of the matter is, it's not easy for Paris Saint-Germain to sell their players. A, because everybody knows they need to sell players, which obviously makes it tougher. Um, but B, because their players make enormous amounts of money um, because, they're, because they're, they're PSG players, right? So they're all on high wages. And that in turn means that, you know, unless you sell them to another big club and they're really into bad players, you know, nobody likes to take a pay cut, which then means that you've got to offer them a better deal on, on, on the transfer fee. So, yeah, from where I sit, it's really hard. I won't say it's impossible, but it's hard to see how they won't breach. And one of the things that you mentioned there was about non-Qatari sponsorship, and I think one of the interesting things about FFP is that – they basically have the right that if you do what I would call a left pocket, right pocket deal, where you sort of get one of your other companies to sponsor, you know, your shirt or your stadium or something, that they sort of have the right to evaluate the deal. And if it's not, uh, if it's not kosher, they can sort of adjust the amount because I that is that what happened to City a couple years ago, I believe, that they have the right to when when a team does like a sponsorship deal with maybe one of its own, with its other subsidiaries or such, that they have the right yeah. 
to reevaluate the deal, which I think is what happened to City, I think, a couple of years ago. It happened to City, and it happened to Paris Saint-Germain themselves a couple of years ago um, with the Qatari sponsorship. Yeah, it's called, um, it's called a related party transaction. So basically, you know, UEFA looked at a deal, and, and it can be a sponsorship deal, it can be a commercial deal, it can be the sale of the player. Um, I'll give you an example. If, uh, if let's say City are in trouble and, you know, they sell Fabian Delph to, you know, New York City FC for $100 million, um, then UEFA steps in and say, wait a minute, you're selling it to a related party because New York City FC have the same owners. Um, we think this price is inflated. Looking at Delph and his profile and his wages and whatever else, we think that this is fair value. You know, let's say ten million or whatever it is, and um, and so we're only going to count this as as a ten million profit in your books um, when we do our financial fair play calculation, and that's that's what they did last time with some of Manchester City sponsorships, some of the moves City did, like for example, City had this big sort of database of a scouting database of players, which it then it sold to New York City FC and to. Uh, um, I think it was Melbourne, you know, some of the other clubs that they own, um, for X amount of money. And, you know, UEFA said, no, in our opinion, it's not worth that much. And they said the same thing with the Qatari sponsorship deals, I think it was 200 million or something. Um, they said, wait, this is nonsense. This is not, you know, nobody else would give you 200 million ESG. So we're going to look at comparable clubs, comparable situations comparable sponsorship deals and we're going to say it's worth X amount. I think it was $75 million or something. Um, and that ultimately led to the breach. Yeah, I guess the closest that we probably have to that kind of thing here is I know there have been issues in the past when, uh, I think this has happened in baseball, where a team that also owns its own broadcast network will negotiate a deal that uh, some like its competitors may say isn't necessarily fair market value or such like that because you know it's the money's just like I said left pocket right pocket and I don't I'm trying to remember if like anybody's been penalized for it, but I, I think I remember that happening maybe in New York where it was like a a team's rights were up for grabs and they kept it in house for less than you know like their competitors would have said were market value that's I think the closest thing. I can think of here. I get, you know, it's it's funny, you know, American sports and sports in the rest of the world are sort of so different from each other. Sometimes it's like apples and oranges when you try and make comparisons between the two. I let me make an analogy. Um, you know, I know that different leagues in the U.S. You know, they have the caps are, are, are different levels of, of, of softness, if you will. Um, but let's say. The, um, the Green Bay Packers are, you know, they want to sign somebody, but they're only a million dollars under the cap, uh, and they want this guy wants two million. They can't sign him to a million dollar contract, and then the the team owner, which is a bad example, because of course there is no team owner in Green Bay, but um, you know, the club then decides and says like, you know, sells him a million dollar house for for for, for a dollar. Or whatever, or so it's like a two million dollar house for a million dollars, or you know something like that. You cannot do that, and I think at that point you look in. You're looking at 
you know, you're trying to get an, an unfair advantage by using external actors. Um, so we're going to discount that, and we're going to look at that. I think maybe that, that would be an analogy. This week uh, in the Premier League, uh, I guess the two big matchups are probably uh, Liverpool and Arsenal, and the one that I, of course, am concerned with is Chelsea versus Everton, which some people over here would, of course, call the, the Men and Blazers derby. Um, Chelsea has been sort of up and down so far. You know, they had that shock loss the first week, and then they came back to beat Spurs. Last week, Everton, you know, uh, had a win and, you know, a, a draw against City. How do you think How do you think that game's going to shape up on Sunday? Um, I mean, I think it's a bigger game for Chelsea, I think, in, in, in some ways, because, you know, you can kind of, I mean, let's face it, the, the first game, obviously, that, that home defeat uh, to, to Burnley was, was a shock. Um, they got some pride back with the win over over Spurs, but you know now you could be back to square one against Everton. Um, I think you know Chelsea right now are in kind of on the pitch and, and they're in by any means necessary now. Um, you know, the, the way they played against Spurs wasn't necessarily pretty; it was it was efficient. Um, I think once they got the tactics the tactics right. Uh, they conceded shots, but they also were able to to create their own chances at the other end. Um, I'm thinking especially of the Monaco chance and then William hitting the, the woodwork. And, you know, I, I think he feels that without Hazard and Fabregas, or perhaps his two most creative players, you know, he has to he has to play that way. Um, I would think is more of a situation of flux, right? Because of club, club record signing, Guilty Sigurdsson, the only song for a handful of minutes um, against City. Uh, I'm really curious to see how how Koeman plans on integrating Guilty into uh, into the Everton formation. Certainly, well, there's no room for Ross Barkley. I would imagine he's going to go, but um, you know, to what degree and how do Rooney and Sigurdsson coexist, for example, uh, on a team that Last year, I thought counterattacked very well, and this year maybe isn't quite set up to do that. Um, it, it'll be interesting, and, and, and to what degree also, you know, some of the kids. I mean, I love Mason Holgate. I think he's a tremendous, tremendous player. Kevin uh, likes Talbot doing a lot. Um, I don't know. It, it, I just find it interesting to see how these things all shake out. You know, he's got a ton of options. He's played a ton of systems in his career. He's comfortable in all of them. Uh, sometimes when you have too many options and you try different things out, you know, you can drop points early in the season. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be one of the themes, you know, I think two real tacticians going on at Stanford Bridge. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, which people may or may not know about, is um, when you were in college uh, at Penn, um, you were a, I, can I say, frequent, regular uh, attendee of ECW in Philadelphia. How did how did all that come about? How did you become a regular at the at the arena? Um, I, it was it was a pretty random thing. I mean, you know, like I was in college. I think I was a sophomore or, or a junior at the time. You know, you looked for sort of different things to do on uh, uh, on weekends, and 
on one of the one of the local channels, like hot sort of late night syndicated almost homemade show with Joey Styles shouting and and then I you know, and I saw that they had the the, the trailer like the um you know, the, what they call the ECW arena, I guess Viking Hall in South Philly and they said, you know, hey, let's go. You know, worst comes to worst. It's uh, it's a couple blocks away from from Pat Steaks and we'll get a cheesesteak afterward if it sucks, you know. Um, instead, we went and uh, we were absolutely hooked. Um, it was just a tremendous, tremendous crowd um, of people who then kept coming to every single show. There was this guy with a hat. There's other two with these tattoos. There's this other guy who wore like a cop outfit, but it was clearly not actually a cop. Um, and and some some tremendous uh, tremendous performers uh, in those uh, in, in, in those early days. You know, Tommy Dreamer, Shane Douglas, Kaz, um, you know, uh, and of course Mick Foley um, as well. And and I, I I just kept going whenever they had a show afterwards. And moved to New York for grad school. Um, I came down. I went to see them. Um, went to see them in Queens several times when they were up, and even after I moved to London, you know, I, I flew back two or three times a year. We tried to make it coincide uh, with a show, and um, yeah, and I was absolutely gutted when, uh, when when sort of it all fell apart. Now, were you a fan? Were you a wrestling fan before this, or was just did this just because it was something to do? You you had no. Uh preconceived notions when you went or how did that happen so i've been a fan as a kid you know i think it's a phase that like a lot of people go through but you know we're talking 1980 we're talking late 80s and we're talking you know the w this is even before raw where you just had this like sort of crappy tv show where you know it, it was always a squash fight and it was just about kind of you know getting your parents to go and pay for the pay-per-view at some point you know so I did it for a while, and kind of, but I sort of lost interest. But ECW was just so different, you know. The the idea that you know you sort of had heels and faces, but not really, because actually, like the good guys are often were often bad, and the bad guys were were often cool, and you know, um, and you had feuds, and it. They were just such tremendous performers, and they gave so much. They gave so they gave everything in the ring, you know. And and you've got these people, and and, and they're just a few feet away from you, um, and they're putting on a show. I mean, in the ve- the very very first few times we went, that was still when ECW was in its um, bring your own weapons phase, and that was downright bizarre and and dangerous. Um, you know, and whatever, at that age, like, oh, this is cool, you know, nobody's going to. But once that was phased out, I mean, it was still a tremendous show because, you know, people were just athletically, storylines, and, you know, sort of the gore aspect of it, you know, you didn't really, you know, you didn't really need it, you didn't really miss it, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what drew me for it, you know, it was... It was like a form of street art that felt really, really real. And, and you also definitely felt as if you were a part of it, just being there at, at ringside, because stuff was, was happening all around you. 
what were some of the the memorable things that happened while you were there? I I, I mean, you said like you said it's you were there for a couple of years, so I assume you saw most of the big angles that took place. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, stuff I remember. I remember, remember the show in in Queens. I remember going to it was it was like it was like an ice storm in New York, and all these people waiting outside. And my friend and I, we were dying to go to the bathroom, so we just kind of like we kind of like snuck in before you were really supposed to go in, and we go to the bathroom, and and Nick Foley's there, you know, in the urinal next to us. Like, whoa. And he just starts just, just starts chatting to us, you know. Um I remember that. I remember one of my earliest memories was going and they had the, the, the crucifixion angle, which I think actually of all the things ECW did, that was well, apart from the Eric Kulas incident, um, that was definitely you know, that was one of the things that kinda of got them um that they got them in trouble. Um And that was the night that that was the night that Kurt Angle was there. I guess I think before he even was in the WWF, and I, I think he said later he was just like, "What? What am I getting myself into?" And just was like appalled and shocked. Yeah, I didn't even realize that at the time. I only realized that later when when he was in a documentary, and I didn't put two and two together that it was the same guy, you know. Um, and. I, yeah, I mean, there's just there's just so many. Um, you know, I remember uh, the. Okay. Yeah, I I we were there when um, I remember nine one one coming in, and I think he, he accidentally threw somebody out of the ring and. and forget who it was but, but but he landed he landed very awkwardly on a landed very awkwardly on on, on, on somebody in, in the audience who didn't get out and this guy somehow they just look up and this guy this, this audience members got all this blood coming out of his mouth but he's laughing and he thinks it's the greatest thing in the world you know and he's just smoking his member and he didn't want to get him uh, attention I, I mean it, it it was just a very very unique scene yeah, the only time that I went to the arena to see ECW, because I've been, you know, like dozens and dozens of times since then, was I was doing a newspaper article about sort of alternatives to, like, the WWF and WCW. And, like, I went to see, like, Jim Kettner's uh, promotion in Wilmington and the the promotion in Baltimore, and I went to the ECW shows, and I knew I knew Dave Shearer, and so, like, I got to the one show that I went to. I got to sit up with like him and Mike and those guys in the crow's nest. And the, I think the only, I think the thing that happened then, I think that was like the return of Public Enemy, because I think this was like '99, so it was kind of late in the in the run of the company. But but it, it's it was always so funny that like you see that building on TV, and then when you get there, you know, it's. A little tiny, you know. It's just, again, Heyman was Heyman was a genius in a number of ways, and shooting that building was was one of them to make it look completely different. I remember so vividly how you go through the you go through the doors, um, and there's all the weird 
parking and, and forming mills around the corner. And straight ahead in the back, there's, there's like a hole in the wall, and they're offering like very crappy concessions, like you know, hot dogs that they probably bought like 150 for for 2.99 or something. And the um, and and sort of the the, the crow's nest behind and to the left. I mean it. Yeah, <laughs> you just bring back a lot of memories that place. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, when I when I used to go up to see Chikara run, like in the mid to late two thousands, like I would always because they ran in the afternoon on Sundays, but like we would always go extra early, so that like we would be there like at like one when the door like when the shows at four, just so we could get one of the few parking spaces next to the building. Because it's like the farther away you parked from the arena, it was like the more you were taking a chance of what would what would happen to your car by the time you, you know, like if you parked under one of those ninety five underpasses, it's like yeah, good luck with that. So it's like we'd rather sit for two hours in our car. It's just you're you're an out of towner, so that's why. I mean, it's not that big a thing. It's it's not It would have been fine. It would have been fine. Do you keep up with any of any wrestling now, or is that just something in your past? It's in my past. I mean, I'm I, I follow Paul Heyman on, on Twitter. Um, I got to see him when he came he came here to London uh, last summer um, and spoke to. Uh, uh, I mean, he sells out where he goes. I mean, I was just shocked by the amount of people. I was shocked when we were here to England, like the amount of people who who know about EC? I mean, obviously wrestling is big here, but the other people here who, who know about ECW, and ECW, as far as I know, was never on TV in this country, and uh, and never traveled here, and, you know, I mean, it's pretty cool and pretty special when, you know, guys are talking about uh, a promotion from 20 years ago, you know, uh, and not a big promotion uh, either, just obviously very influential them. Um... That's pretty special, you know. And people on people on Twitter, I mean, uh, when 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 I re- retweet like RVD or whatever, like you know, people like, oh, I know you're an ECW fan, and like you know, and I check in this dude's talking to me, he's like 23, and I'm like, well, what do you possibly know about ECW? Like, but it's awesome that 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 it lives on, you know. Well, it's amazing now that there's so much on on the internet that it's like. You know, I mean, I can, I mean, the fact that, like, I can watch, you know, I can watch, like, Lucha from Mexico City three times a week, just streaming, it's like, and then all of the, you know, all the old stuff, it's like, old Crockett or old Mid-South or, you know, like, almost every promotion you can find years and years worth of stuff on there, and then, you know, like, people have the network, and there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds, so it's, it's, I'm amazed, yeah, the sort of knowledge of people who are, you know, 20 years younger than me who know, like, about angles from before they were born, and it's like, that's so, that's so weird, but but it, it's interesting over there, it's like, the British scene is sort of so hot right now, you know, you've got, like, all those guys that the WWE hired, plus, you know, there's, like, three or four promotions that, you know, or drawing sellout houses and trying to, get, you know, and they tried to bring World of Sport back, but I think that's probably dead now. But you know, it's it's really on fire in England right now. Yeah, I mean, so there's a promotion that I'd still love to get to called This Is Progress, which is in London where I live. Unfortunately, uh, 
the shows tend to clash, clash with my work day. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there's definitely stuff going on. Yeah. yeah, they just ran, they ran over here. Like, I think SummerSlam week, they ran, I think they ran a show in New York, and then they ran a show in Boston. Because I know, because I listened to Jim Smallman's podcast, and I know, like, their show this week was them talking about their trip to America. So it's, and I think they're doing, like, the, uh, the thing now where all these independent companies all come to wherever WrestleMania is every year and they run shows that week leading up, leading up to the pay-per-view. So it's, it's funny. It's like a lot of things where the fan base may be smaller than it's been before, but they're much more rabid and much more into it. And I think that's true here. And I think that's true over there where you are. Um, so, so, yeah, I want to thank you once again uh, for doing the show. Like you said, um, people can re- over here. People can read you on ESPNFC.com and see you on ESPNFC TV. Uh, for people in the UK, you of course write for the Times, and you're host of the Game Podcast. Plus, I know you appear lots. Of, it always strikes me funny that like all of these especially football journalists appear like on every, every conceivable network on like everybody's layers. Like, there's no sort of boundaries. It's like you hear somebody's on talk sport one day, they're on BBC the next day or in the, and then they have their own podcast and you're like, some of these guys, you know, like you and, and Rafa and Horncastle and Brassel is just like, you're seemingly everywhere, which is, you know, I'm sure it's cool for you guys and it's cool for fans too, especially, those of us over here. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I think I mean I, I'm. I have some freedom to go on um, different radio outlets. Um, you know, TV wise, I am pretty much exclusive to uh, to ESPN and uh, and and writing wise as well. I do my column in the Times because I I've been doing that for a long time. But um, that's a slightly different audience. But. But yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, those guys you mentioned and, and they're all good friends of mine, uh, Andy, James, and Raph Konigstein, who, you know, I've known for, for many, many years, and we always uh, rent an apartment together every World Cup or European Championship. Um, yeah, that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much, pretty much how we, how we roll, you know, you, you go out there and, and you try to reach as many people as possible. Thank you again, Gab. And uh, we are working on some other football guests that we hope to bring you in the future. But for now, thanks everybody for listening, and we will see you next time.